You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual woke up this morning and did what I always do first thing in the morning. I picked up my phone and I looked at Twitter. Twitter, oh my God, it brings out the worst in people. And yet it is the last thing I look at every night before I fall asleep. And the first thing I look at every morning when I get up and I blame Catholicism. My family's faith tradition, it induces a certain masochism that, you know, you really just have to embrace because there's no fighting it. And the first tweet I read in my masochistic fugue this morning, well, first pair of tweets were from Nate Silver at 538. It's a dead heat, and the latest polling is consistent with a Clinton lead of only 1% nationally state firewall breaking up trend lines awful. That was painful. That hurt. And then over to Josh Marshall at Talking Points Memo seeking some comfort, seeking perhaps some unskewing of the polls where I read this. Beneath these numbers, we see a persistent trend almost everywhere. Clinton does better in a head-to-head race than in a multiple candidate race where Johnson and Stein are added. That's great for Clinton. Josh Marshall continues, until you consider that in most but not all states, Johnson and Stein are on the ballot. All right, they say, and here's hoping they're right, That people who say that they're voting for third-party candidates, the closer you get to election day, the tighter the race gets, the less likely they are to actually, in the end, vote for those third-party candidates. Hopefully Clinton will scoop up most of those people. And I'm just going to hope that's the case while trying not to dwell too much on the 2000 race when that wasn't the case. I'm not dwelling because even though pot is legal here in Washington State, I want to leave some for other people to enjoy. Anyway, you know what? Actually, top of this week's show is we're getting closer to the election. I didn't want to talk about the election or the debate last night. I can't actually talk about the debate on Monday night because we recorded today's show on Monday morning. If you want to hear me rant and rave about the debate, go find Blabbermouth on iTunes or wherever you get your finer podcasts. It's the Strangers Other podcast. So I can't talk about the date. Don't know who won the debate. But I am, like so many others, increasingly worried that Donald Trump could win the election. Anyway, I don't want to talk about the debate or the election. And I don't want to scold Gary Johnson voters. Hey, guys, did you hear that Gary Johnson's solution for climate change is colonizing other planets? Yeah, that's not a wasted vote. Instead of talking about that, I thought I would tell a story about a boy, a beautiful boy. Years ago, when I lived and worked at a video store, night manager, four-star fiction video in Madison, Wisconsin, there was this boy, and by boy, of course, I mean adult male, who worked in the bagel store. That was right next door. And he was so fucking beautiful. I couldn't even look. at It was like looking at the sun during an eclipse. I couldn't look right at him when he would come into the store. I would sort of glance sideways or try to catch his reflection in mirrors. He was just so beautiful. And I was obsessed with him. Tall, shaggy blonde hair, big blue eyes, porcelain skin, just gorgeous. And I did a bad, bad thing. Because I wanted to ask him out, but I didn't know if he was gay and I didn't want to be, you know, the millionth fag who asked him out and made him feel hounded by the boys who wanted into his pants. If he was straight, I didn't want to be another guy just like macking on him at the bagel store. So I did a bad thing and looked up his video rental history. 
uh, in the computers because he would come in to rent videos. And I looked up his rental history seeking clues. Was he renting gay stuff? Was he renting another country? Was he renting Tales of the City? And I looked up his rental history and it was all straight boy shit. The Godfathers parts one and two. Apocalypse Now. Platoon. Wall Street. It was the most depressing list of movies I've ever seen in my life because you couldn't look at it and think that this guy wanted anything to do with homosexual ever. This was the straightest collection of films. And reading that rentless year was so depressed because these were the straightest films outside of Debbie Does Dallas and Behind the Green Door and Deep Dark. It was so personally upsetting to me. And then 20 years later, 25 years later, I'm talking to someone who was in Madison, Wisconsin at the same time I was. We're in Los Angeles. We run into each other on a street corner. We go have a drink. We're talking about old times in Madison. And he brings up the bagel boy, the gorgeous guy who worked in the bagel shop. And I'm like, oh, my God, I remember him. Oh, my God. And then I say that I looked up his video rental history and he was straight. And so I never asked him out the million times he came into the store. And my old friend looked at me and went, oh, no, he was gay. He was gay. I know his boyfriend. He lives in blank now. He's married. He's gay. And I wanted to die because I didn't ask the guy out because I made assumptions based on his film preferences about his sexual preference that wasn't true or sexual orientation that wasn't true. And that's so sad. Now, of course, I, I'm happy with how things worked out. I love the husband I've got and I plan to spend the rest of my life with him. But I would have loved spending maybe a weekend with Bagel Boy or a summer with Bagel Boy. So I guess the moral of the story for you, dear listener, as we distract ourselves from the election and the poll numbers right now, is don't hesitate. Ask somebody out. Go for it. Don't sexually harass people. Don't access computer files to spy on people. And welcome that answer if the answer is no, because when you get a no, that means you're not going to have to waste your time on this anymore. But ask somebody out. Go for it. The world could end tomorrow or the world could end on November 8th and you don't want to look back with regret on what could have been all right coming up on this week's show we've got Cheryl Strayed author of Wild and co-host of the Dear Sugar podcast here to answer questions about fucking people on the Pacific Crest Trail don't forget to read Savage Love every week in The Stranger thestranger.com and other alt-weekly papers across the country and now your calls uh, hi, Dan. I am a 33-year-old male in a relationship with somebody who's 25, and we're engaged to be married. We've been together for about two years now. And uh, before she met me, she used to be a sugar baby, which means she used to go on dates and be paid by rich men to do anything from go out for dinner to uh, full-on having sex and uh and, you know she's not doing that anymore she stopped before i ever even met her uh, she said it's because she doesn't feel good about herself when she's doing that so here we are we're engaged to be married and she seems to be struggling with uh insecurity in the relationship and doubting whether or not i really love her and it seems like she's gotten to the point where a couple of times a week Almost every other day, she's just like breaking down about something and thinks that I don't give her enough attention. She needs so much attention. 
and I love her so much. I spend all of my time with her. I don't even hang out with any of my friends anymore. They've kind of fallen out. And I found out just now that she's back on these sugar baby websites and is planning to meet someone tomorrow and wants to borrow my car. She doesn't know that I know this. I snooped through her phone. And so I guess my question is, uh, should I let this thing go and not be with her anymore? Or, I mean, should I confront her and get a straight answer from her and, and tell her, you know, you can't do this? Or should I just try to love on her more and give her more attention and maybe she'll uh, see that she has nothing to worry about and that I'm really serious about being with her for the rest of my life? And I don't know, I've never been to this point with anyone before. I've never been engaged before and I really do love her. But this is just kind of jarring. When a woman's in a relationship with a man who ends up becoming isolated from her family and her friends, ends up seeing no one but him, we usually can identify that as a red flag uh, that is warning us about uh, a potentially or actually abusive relationship. Typically or often when a man isolates his female partner, it's with anger, threats, uh, threatened violence or actual physical violence. And it just causes that person to pull away in an attempt to mollify her angry male partner uh, to, to soothe his insecurities because he's upset and angry and jealous and questioning whether she really loves him. And to prove to him that she really loves him, she ends up cutting off her friends, her male friends, her, her relatives, not hanging out with anybody that she knows from work so that he doesn't have anything that he could point to to justify his anger, his rage, his jealousy. But of course, the anger, rage, and jealousy are just tools to control that person, to isolate that person, and to paint that person into a corner where they're free to abuse them in, in worse ways. And it just it escalates over time. It gets worse. When a woman does that same thing, isolates a male partner, rarely does she use anger, threats, violence, although that does sometimes happen. You hear from men to whom that happened with anger, threats, physical violence. Often, it's with insecurity, vulnerability, tears. The tools that a woman might use to isolate her male partner, to get him to cut off friends, family, coworkers, to see only her, isn't rage. It's sad. And you end up isolating yourself to prove to her that she's the most important person in your life. And in the end, you've got no one else. And... And you wind up painted into the same corner that a, a woman in a relationship with an abuser, a male abuser, might find herself painted into. Just the paint's a different color. I think you need to end this relationship. I think you need to break off this engagement. You're already isolated. You're already wondering what it is you're doing wrong. What else you can do to prove to her that you really do love her while she is doing what? While she is cheating on you while she is resuming a sex work ish career that she told you previously made her miserable behind your back without your consent. And why is she doing that? I don't know. And it's really irrelevant at this stage. You need to end this relationship. You need to break off this engagement because just like a male partner who isolates a female partner with anger and threats and violence, you're being isolated by this person with tears and sadness and insecurity and vulnerability, but you're being isolated nonetheless. She's 
going to keep demanding more and more proof from you that she is the only person in the world that you care about while she does what? While she runs around demonstrating to you that you are not the only person in the world that she cares about. You're in an abusive relationship and you need to get out. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old female and I've been in a long-distance relationship with a guy for about six months. It's a great relationship. I was single for a long time. And yeah, it's just a really great relationship all around. Um, But he has a disgusting habit that I just noticed. We see each other mm, every three weeks on average. And I just noticed this habit probably two to three visits ago. And I am really disgusted by it. It kind of horrifies me. Um, He eats his eye boogers. He eats the discharge from his eyes. I just noticed it recently. I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention or if he was holding back doing it before. But in general, he's been very comfortable around me pretty quickly, which I like on the one hand. But there's some things I just don't want to see. And I really don't want to see that. I'm not squeamish and this fucking disgusts me. I kind of brought it up in a joking way, like, hey, do you know you do this kind of weird, funny thing? And he said, yeah. And I asked why he did that, why he ate it. And he said, well, what else? Where else would I put it? Which is just a strange answer. And he was genuinely shocked that I had never done that. So he asked me, like, if it, if it bothered me or if I, and I said that, you know, it kind of grossed me out. And he said, okay, I'll try not to do it in front of you. I didn't want to make him feel bad. Um, I tried to frame it in kind of just a funny way, like, hey, you have this funny quirk and it also kind of is gross. So maybe just don't do it in front of me. I don't think I was direct enough because he continued to do it and he did it at the restaurant and it just grosses me out. And I don't know if it's okay for me to be like, don't fucking do this in front of me. It's disgusting. Or if I should just let it go and try to ignore it. I, it's bothering me a lot. It's like making me not want to kiss him because I think about it and I'm probably fixating on it too much. But on the one hand, some things you just can't get over being grossed out by. And I'm hoping that you can help me figure out what to do about this situation. This rarely happens where I get the question I've never gotten before. So congratulations and gold star to you. And yuck, oh my God, your mistake, not to blame the victim here, but your mistake wasn't saying, please don't do that around me. When you needed to say, you have to stop doing that. That is disgusting, objectively disgusting. And it must end. You were poorly socialized. If your parents didn't see you doing that, it didn't slap the eye boogers out of your hands before they made it to your mouth. They failed you as parents. So I am going to, in parento locus, step in here and get you to knock this shit the fuck off. I don't want to kiss you if I know you're like ingesting your eye boogers all the time because it's fucking gross. And you can make it a game. You can go to Mr. S the big BDSM leather queer retailer of sex toys and wearables and everything else. And you can get these remote control uh, 
e-stim electric torture boxes where you can wire up his nuts uh, and have the remote control in your hand. And whenever you see him going for an eye booger, you can shock his nuts. And I bet that that would help him stop. I bet he would learn rather quickly to knock that the fuck off, not just in front of you, but ever, because you would be using electroshock therapy to deprogram him from this disgusting habit, to unprogram this disgusting habit, to rip this out of his motherboard and get him to fucking stop it. Ew, yuck. He's in Seattle, you say? Hopefully he's a listener. We have many listeners in Seattle. If you're out there, if you're listening, dude, dude, think back on all the women who ever ghosted you. This is why. This is why they never called you back after that date where they saw you gouge a crusty booger out of the corner of your eye or did never called you back after they spent the night with you. And in the morning while you were making pancakes, they saw you gouge the crusty eye booger out of the corner of your eye and then pop it into your mouth. And then you never heard from them again. You were wondering why the night went so well and the date went so well. This is why. So you have to stop this. It is revolting. Knock it the fuck off. Or you're going to lose this woman, this woman that you're dating, this lovely woman from California who called, hey, woman, hey, caller, he's going to lose you if this doesn't stop, right? Right. I can hear you nodding. You will not be able to tolerate this because it is icky. Thank you for sharing, and you'll be doing him a solid if you go to Mr. S and you get that electro East Dim ball shocking device. Hi, Dan and Atrisk Youth. Uh, my name is Matt, I'm 31, straight male. I'm having a problem with my shy boner. I'm in a committed, monogamous relationship. Met my girlfriend on Tinder about a year ago. It's been incredible ever since. We get along great. We're best friends. We talk about uh, anything and everything. The sex is frequent, satisfying, and adventurous. Basically, very little to complain about or worry about, um, except my dick is kind of being an asshole. I feel like I've always had what I call a shy cock. Once I fuck a girl a few times... Um, I very barely have an issue, but in some of those initial contacts in my past, uh, my cock hasn't exactly risen to the occasion. My erection is basically Tinkerbell. We all have to believe in it for it to live. So now I'm having uh, the best sex of my life, and I'm anxious. Uh, we went to a sex club a month ago with friends, and while my buddy was pounding his girlfriend and multiple other ladies, I was one dick. I was relatively okay with it. My girlfriend was fine with it. I mean, we, we rolled around. I went down on her. Other people went down on her. We had a really good time. I'm just worried about the next time. Um, I want to explore, to swap, to, to have fun and, and kind of explore sexuality together. But I'm worried about going into it with my confidence. I'm worried about like going in and disappointing our play partners. Uh, we've talked about Viagra and male enhancements that you see advertised, but I'm, I'm just not sure. Viagra is expensive but I think maybe worth it um, to get over this uh, mental hump that I'm dealing with right now. Boners are like Tinkerbell. Where have I heard that before? I think I've heard it on the show. I think it came out of my mouth. Credit Dan Savage, or I will see you in court, motherfucker. All right. First few times you're with someone new, you have shy dick, you have nervous dick, you have Tinkerbell dick. And then things write themselves. Hopefully it will also be the case with not the people, because if you're going to group sex environments, there's going to be a rotating cast of people. But with this particular circumstance, you had Tinkerbell dick. It was nervous. Not enough people in the room believed because they hadn't seen your dick perform before. So everyone wasn't clapping for your dick and it wasn't hard. But hopefully, as you go and you get more comfortable in this 
environment, your dick, Tinkerbell, will come back to fucking life. I would recommend getting a Viagra prescription. I know that they're expensive, but popping that pill is as much physiological as it is placebo. Just knowing you took it for many men gets them the boner. And it's the belief that the pill has this magic, talismanic, Tinkerbell clapping for power that gives guys the boner as often as the physiological effect that the pill has. So lay in a few of those pills, pop a pill, keep going back, have fun, be safe, or as safe as you can be in that circumstance. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old gay man in an open relationship with an amazing primary partner. Uh, We've been together for a year and a half, and our relationship is rock solid. The issue I'm having isn't with him. It's actually with my first boyfriend. I met my first boyfriend when we were seniors in high school, and even though we lived hours apart, we fell madly in love, decided to become boyfriends, we planned trips to see each other, we lost our opportunity to each other, and we had a great long-distance relationship for about nine months. Then we got accepted into colleges on opposite sides of the country, and we ultimately decided to quit while we were ahead and break up. Since then, we've still never lived in the same city, but we've remained good friends. We keep up via Facebook and the occasional text message, and we'll make time to see each other if we're ever visiting where the other lives. So despite all the time and distance, our connection has never really strained, and I've often fantasized about sleeping with him again. But between living in different cities and one or both of us being in monogamous relationships over the years, it's just never been an option. So fast forward to now. I'm taking a trip to see him in a few weeks, and we'll be staying with him at his house. He's single and lives alone, and he doesn't know that I'm in an open relationship. If I'm being honest, I do hope to sleep with him while I'm there. But if we don't, that's also fine. I want him to know that the possibility is on the table, but it's not something that I'm expecting. So I'm struggling with how and when to tell him that I'm in an open relationship. Part of me wants to just wait until I'm there and hope it comes up naturally while we're catching up. But my fear in doing so is I'll catch him off guard or make him think that the only reason I came there is to sleep with him. And the other part of me thinks I should let him know before I get there so he has time to consider what he wants. He's not prude or closed-minded, but he's pretty wholesome by nature, and I bet my situation will come as a surprise. For all I know, he's totally hoping to sleep with me too. Or for all I know, he could have totally closed the door on us being physical 12 years ago and now just sees me as his first lover who's just a friend. I really have no sense of how he might feel about any of this. So my fear is that if I don't tell him until I'm there, I risk denying him the same time and space to think through what he wants as I've already had to consider what I want. Then again, to proactively come out and tell him ahead of time seems awkward and risks making it look like the only reason I'm coming there is to sleep with him, which isn't true. And if he doesn't respond positively, I further run the risk of not only an awkward weekend, but of tarnishing the PRF we have. So my question for you is, when and how do you think is the best way for me to bring him into the loop? If hand-wringing was an Olympic sport, you would have so many medals. I would advise you to go without telling him in advance that you hope to get into his pants while you're there. So he knows by dint of your presence, by the fact that you're there, that your coming to see him wasn't contingent on any expectation of sexual favors, which is why you didn't check with him in advance about it. Just be casual. When he asks you what your romantic life is like, which hopefully you guys discuss every once in a while, tell him you're in a new relationship and then add by way of planting a seed, perhaps, that it's an open relationship and this is new for you. And you're both allowed to sometimes sleep with other guys under certain circumstances that are mutually agreeable and then see what he says. Who knows? Maybe you spent the last 12 years wanting to get into your pants again and it'll unfold naturally in conversation with each other. 
maybe he'll take that as an okay from you that he's always wanted to not get back together, but fuck around a little bit for old time's sake. And if he doesn't, and if you really want to put it out there, you really want to say it. And I think you do. I think you should just say it. And clearly you do not have a problem using your words. You use the shit out of them in your question. And so you can say to him everything you said right now to all of us. I have always wanted to maybe roll around with you again. Obviously, I've always wanted to be sexual or intimate with you again for old time's sake, not to be in a relationship again, but to be friends with benefits. We've been friends for 12 years. Maybe we could throw the benefits back in. And if you don't want to, and that's nothing you want, I still want to be friends and sorry about the moment's awkwardness. And people in a circumstance like this, people in your position in a circumstance like this, always project onto the other person the worst possible reaction, that they're going to have some sort of crisis or meltdown or be so insecure about your true feelings for them as if you can't really feel friendly and affectionate for someone and also be physically attracted to them and wanting to get with them as if those are mutually exclusive impulses. And that's not typically the case, particularly if you are considerate and thoughtful and you invite rejection. I always think that's crucial when you're in a circumstance like this, or you're going to ask somebody, a friend, to have a three-way with you and your partner, always invite their rejection. Always say, please, if this is something you're not interested in, if no is what you want to say, don't hesitate to say no. I can hear no. I can take rejection, and it won't change how I feel about you on the friend's side of the ledger, and I won't be upset. So if it's no, just no, and there'll be a moment's awkwardness, and we'll power through it. Like Hillary Clinton powered through pneumonia. We will just power through it because we're buds first. But nothing ventured, nothing gained. You've been wringing your hands and hoping for this for a dozen years. Tell him what you're feeling. Invite him to do the same and see where it gets you. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old straight female. And all throughout my adolescence, I had um, a lot of sexual experiences. I lost my virginity when I was 13. And so... I've done pretty much everything, but the past couple of years I've been dealing with um, just the fallout of a horrible relationship, a little bit of PTSD from some scary situations, and so I have been off of the dating market. I don't really use the internet very much, and I'm not really looking for anybody new, but I have had um, one buddy since I was about... 14 years old, 15 years old. I trust him. I love him. He's a great friend of mine. He has a huge cock. And the only issue that I've been having is that he's not as experienced as I am. He doesn't understand how big his dick is. He um, is horrible at making out. He just doesn't really know what he's doing. And it kind of makes me just not want to have sex with him, even though he's really the only person that I've been having sex with. And I don't know how to guide him in the right direction. I've tried bringing up the topic before. I've tried directing him. I've tried being in charge. And I just can't get him to be better at sex. So if you have any pointers for how I can teach him, tell him, show him, whatever him, to get him to be the fuck buddy, the dildo, the go-to guy for many more years. It sounds like you've already tried everything that I might off the top of my head, recommend you've talked to him, you've used your words, you've tried being in charge and setting the pace and directing the sex and nothing has 
sunk in and nothing's worked. So it may just be a case of hopeless sexual mismatch. Who knows? Maybe his style of kissing and style of fucking with his giant penis is right for someone and just not right for you. Or maybe he's genuinely, really, truly terrible at sex. There are people out there who are objectively, not just subjectively, but objectively awful at it. And sometimes someone being brutally honest with them and taking them by the hand and teaching them how to kiss and teaching them how to fuck and teaching them how to go slow and teaching them how to do things differently can help, can help them have a breakthrough that makes them, if not entirely free of their own patterns, their own desires, their own style, more attentive to someone else's needs, able to edit themselves and perhaps adopt a different style or pace with a different partner whose arousal levels or feedback they're more in tune with or more prone to be tuned to because of your efforts. Lover in the past who slapped them upside the head and had a talk with them about how bad the sex that they were having with you was for you. But it sounds like you've done all that and nothing worked. At a certain point, you have to accept the slangy, cliche definition of insanity, which is don't keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's crazy. And it may be crazy to expect a different result. But be a terrible thing to let that giant penis go to waste. And I'm going to zero in on a word that you used in discussing your feelings about him and his giant dick, which is dildo. You want to use that giant dick as a dildo. How dehumanizing, but potentially how very sexy. And you can give him that option. You can say to him, we don't mesh sexually. Your style and my style, it doesn't really work together. How would you feel about laying there very still, not kissing me, not moving, and I am just going to use your giant penis as a sex toy, as a dildo. You don't have to kiss me. You don't get to kiss me. You don't have to touch me. You don't get to touch me. You don't get to fuck me. You stay very still and I will fuck myself using your cock. Is that something that you think might be sexy? This is you talking to him. Would that turn you on? Would that be sexy for you to be used in that way, objectified in that way, dehumanized in that way by someone who knows you're not just an object, someone who knows you're a human, someone who's an old friend, and isn't going to treat you like a dehumanized object all the time, but just for this little sliver of time, for this mutually agreed to portion of time. And if he says yes to that, maybe that's the approach. And if he agrees to that, if that is sexy for him to think about being used in that way by a friend, maybe that's what would work for both of you together. Hi, Dan. I am a straight female. Um, I've been married for three years. And we have a pretty vanilla sex life. I've always had a pretty vanilla sex life. Um, but I've been happy with it. And I think he's been happy with it. And recently, I think after listening to your show for so long, I decided to ask him what his fantasies are. And he told me that he wants to watch me fuck another girl with a strap on. So I have a couple questions. The first one is, how do we find a girl would do that. The idea actually really turns me on, but also I have no idea how to fuck a girl with a strap on. So I guess those are my questions. Where do I find her and how do I do it? And also we have a little girl and um, I, I don't know, I guess we would have to find a babysitter for the night or how do you even um, do that when you have a child? 
There are tons of great books out there and online video tutorials about strap-on sex or pegging. You can get The Ultimate Guide to Strap-on Sex by Carlin Lotney. You can also get the terrific book, The Adventurous Couple's Guide to Strap-on Sex by the terrific Violet Blue, mostly about fucking a dude in the ass with a strap-on dildo. But the general terms apply, and who knows, if your husband is floating, you fuck some other woman with a strap-on in front of him. I bet you it won't be too long before he's floating. You fuck him in front of that other woman with that strap on. Have fun. Good luck. You can also drop by a sex toy shop, uh, Good Vibrations, Babeland, Come As You Are, Shebop, Smitten Kitten. They're all over the place. These woman-owned, feminist, progressive, right-on sex toy shops. They always have really helpful staff. They have educational programs. And if you go in there and you say, we're getting our first strap on and we're curious about what we need to know, you will get a download. You will get a lot of help uh, in those stores and others like them. So go out there and tell the nice lady who's walking you around, come as you are, or Good Vibrations or Shebop, exactly what you're shopping for and exactly what you hope to do with it. And they'll be very helpful. Where you find the girl, Adult Friend Finder, Fat Life, OK Cupid, you just put it out there who you are, what you're looking for, and somebody will. Raise their hand. That's the magic of the internet. It exists to bring people together who would like to have a sexual adventure, amongst other things. It exists, amongst other things, to bring people together who would like to have that kind of sexual adventure. And then you use all the same common sense and best practices you would use when it comes to internet dating. Talk for a little bit before you meet up. Meet in public first. If you don't have a good feel about who they are, trust your gut. You don't have to go through with it. Set limits, set boundaries. And be as concerned for her limits and boundaries as you guys are upfront about your own limits and boundaries. And then you get a hotel room if you have a little one at home. Or you arrange a play date, an overnight for your kid at a friend's house. And you schedule your big, big, big fantasy fulfilling party. Have fun. Glad your husband opened up to you and I'm glad you were so receptive. Hi, Dan. My name's Annie. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. I'm a 26-year-old straight girl, but I'm actually in the States right now. I'm hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and I'm in Northern California at the moment. Um, I've been hooking up with this guy for the past thousand miles. It's been about a couple of months. Um, it's been really casual. We're good friends. We get along really well. I know he's hooked up with other people, and I'm fine with that. Two or three weeks ago, we got separated from hikers that we were hiking with. We hiked this section along together. It was really nice. We got along really well. Um, we didn't really hook up on the trail, but we did have sex when we got into a town. Uh, my parents actually came to meet me at the end of that section, and I thought that we would part ways then. But he actually ended up coming with us. He spent the whole week with us. He shared a bed with me in a shared hotel room with my parents and came out to dinner with us the whole nine yards. We were really intimate during that week. We were kissing and cuddling a lot in public in front of my parents. But basically, it was really intimate. After that week, I developed pretty genuine feelings for this guy, and I don't really know what to do. We got back on trail. Um, we met up with a few hikers, and we've been hiking together for the past few days. And it's just been like a 180, like totally different. There's very little affection. We don't talk about the past week. We've never even verbally acknowledged that we've hooked up at all so we're both pretty stubborn he's pretty emotionally immature we're both playing our cards pretty close to our chest I've tried talking to him about sort of serious issues before and he really just brushes them off and can sometimes act like a bit of an asshole to be honest so I don't know how well he would take a conversation about us under normal circumstances I'd just ask him how he feels 
but the reality is that I'm going to be hiking with this person for the next two months, which means sleeping next to each other every night, eating all our meals together with other people and, um, you know, hiking together every day. So I'm having such an amazing time. And if he doesn't respond in a positive way, I don't want it to negatively affect my trip. I don't want there to be awkward witness with him, with me or with anyone else that's around us. So I know I need to have a conversation with him, but I'm just wondering how to best navigate that conversation when you know you're going to have to see this person um, sort of every day for the next two months. Because I know nothing about hiking and nothing about Pacific Crest trailing or the <laughs> etiquette of a situation like this. I went and found the ideal guest expert for you, dear caller, joining us by phone from her studio in Portland, Oregon, Cheryl Strayed, author of Wild, Tiny Beautiful Things, The Dear Sugar Book, Torch and Brave Enough, and the co-host of Arrival, Bitter Rival Advice Podcast, Dear Sugar Radio. Thank you, Cheryl, for jumping on the phone. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. It's always nice to visit enemy territory. <laughs> well, you're deep <laughs> behind enemy lines now. That's right. Um, I've been on your podcast. We are not enemies. We are no. colleagues. So, of course, I heard this question and I thought immediately of you. Yeah, and of course. But before we get to the particulars of this question, I do have a, you know, of the caller's request. I do have a question for you personally, from me to you. Why would anyone fucking do this? I can't think of anything less appealing <laughs> than walking for a thousand plus miles with a bunch of strangers and sleeping. I like to go on hikes sometimes up here in the Pacific Northwest, go up to a lake, but I want to sleep in my own bed at night. Right. And you want like something real to eat at the end of the day instead of like re re de dehydrated beans or something. I and imagine. a shower. Yeah. Oh, shower. Yeah, no, these are all key points. But but Dan, there's something, I call it retrospective fun. There's something about backpacking, especially long distance backpacking, that you're miserable in the moment, it's raining, it's hot, it's snowing, you're, you know, you're, you're hungry, you're sleeping in, in the dirt, you're pooping in the dirt, all of that stuff, it's miserable. Mm -hmm. But it's fun. It's a kind of deep fun. When you look back, even at the end of the day, you're like, wow, that was that was something. I mean, obviously, you know, my whole book Wild is about how miserable it is to hike the PCT and also how glorious, how it's like one of the best things I've ever done in my life. So I think that, I think it's, you know, the hardest things to do are often the most gratifying. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's, that's what people are doing when they're out there on Reminds the trail. Me, I'm going to butcher the quote and I should probably have looked it up, but something Dorothy Parker said about you know, someone asked her if she likes writing books, and she said something along the lines of, "No one likes writing a book, but everyone enjoys having written a book." Yes, yes, and both as a as a long distance hiker and a writer, you see, I really am into this kind of stuff. You know, I mean, like, you like so to suffer. much. And then also, as parenting is the same way, where a lot of times in the moment mm. it's kind of like, oh, "Okay, what are we doing?" And then you're like, "Wow, th this is an amazing experience, right?" I will concede the point. You you finally touched on something that I can I, I completely agree with you there. Yes, I think <laughs> parenting is exactly that. I always compare parenting to a heroin addiction. Like, you know, you've never been so miserable when you're miserable, but you've never been so high when you're high. But sometimes yes. you wonder why you put the needle in your arm in the first place. Right. Yeah. It would have been easier, really, if you hadn't. But then... You know, I mean, you get this other thing. And that's and that's what long distance hiking is about, really. It's it a, is. It's about the misery. Or about the it's heroin? about yeah, it's about pushing yourself 
uh, in ways that are very difficult and often uncomfortable to the limit. And, you know, and then you get, you get the, the, the fruits of those labors, which are really pretty, uh, important and deep and, and fulfilling. And, you know, this is why when I was listening to this, um, letter, have you guys on the show, well, we have already aired it, aired the, the, the letter. Yeah. Can we, I talk we, to them? Yeah, we already heard it. So pick it up from, so listening to this letter, listening to this question. Okay. Right. And so when I was listening to this question, you know, there was such a huge part of me that like, I mean, even just, you know, this idea of like being on the trail and then having all this relationship turmoil, you know, the first thing I thought um, when I was, was hearing her talk about like, oh, I'm going to be hiking with this guy for a couple months. It's like, okay, the great thing about being on a trail is you can walk away, you know, and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I'm so and, proud. I'm so proud of myself because my impulse when she said, "You know, we're gonna be hiking along together for the next couple months," was, "What if you just waited two days and didn't hike and let him get two days ahead of you, and then you don't have to see him anymore?" Yes. No. That's exactly. So, so, so it. I had the right impulse, even though I would never fucking do anything like this ever. No. Yeah. You. You were right on. Absolutely right on. Because <laughs> you know, here's the whole thing about traveling by foot is you know it's is that you you know you do end up you know, in the same place at the same time with a group of people, whatever group of people you happen to be falling in with at any given time. Mm-hmm. But you can also get away from those people. All you have to do is hike faster one day, or like you said, you know, wait it out a day or two, get, get either ahead or behind. And in this case, to this young woman, really, I say, get ahead, sister. I mean, leave the guy in, your, in the dust. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what he thinks. You know, I was so sad to hear, like, in her letter, she's saying, I'm wondering what he's thinking you know, and, and I'm thinking to her, I, I, what I want to say to her is that it doesn't matter what he's thinking. What he's doing is basically disrespecting you. And so move on down the trail in metaphorical and literal ways and uh, move on, you know, get, hike your own hike. hike. You know, get that glorious feeling back that you had before you. And put some physical you know, and emotional distance between you and this douchebag. That's right. And you don't have to spend every night in, with him. I mean, and that's what's, this is what I, I'm speaking to as well. I mean, one of the great things about hiking a long distance trail is it is, it's both a thing you're doing. It's also really a metaphor for life and so much about, uh, surviving any of the sorrows or sufferings or heartbreaks that any, any of us endure, uh, you know, uh, throughout our lives is that you have to keep moving forward and, and you have to take responsibility for, for your own choices in your own life. And, you know, you do not need to, uh, you know, wallow in that kind of, in that kind of sorrow, this kind of low grade sorrow that you have, you, you can move along and it will be a, you know, a glorious something else awaits ahead further down the trail away from this guy. So we're not going to answer her question. She gets to her question at the end is she needs to have a convo, but what to say? And our answer is you don't need to have a convo no. and there's nothing to say. There's nothing to say. Well, I mean, why should I, this is, I, I see this so often, especially with women. I have, I have to say, and it, it just bums me out. It's like, why do women always have to talk to men about why those men are treating them like shit. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, actions speak louder than words. He's not interested in anything more with, with this woman. And he's, he's told her that already. She doesn't need to have him say it out loud to her. Mm-hmm. I right? often find that women want to know like that higher emotional IQ thing and that emotional engagement thing that women are so much better at than men and characterize so many close female friendships as opposed to male friendships where people don't talk about their feelings and emotions often is this desire to understand what was going on. Like, they can't accept ambiguity or not knowing. They have to. They have to have an answer, and yeah, so they want to know. So they want to be told. So they want to have that convo because they can't round it up from he's being a douchebag to writing that person off and putting them out of your mind because you're because women often and you know not to gender it but like 
continuing with how you gendered it, going on down that trail, women often have a hard time like letting go and walking away without yeah. an answer, some form of closure or an explanation. And sometimes there is no explanation. That's right. Well, and also as the gender, you know, I mean, we are really from the beginning socially conditioned to be the the gender that, you know, we're supposed to be the likable gender. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're right now in an age where we're still having the conversation about whether, you know, Hillary Clinton is smiling often enough. OK. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, every the, all the language that this uh, caller used was about was not about how she felt about this guy. It was about how he was you know, how she was wondering what he was thinking or feeling. Mm -hmm. And I do think that part of that conversation she wants to have at its core is, why don't you like me? What did I do wrong? Why, 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 why am I no longer good enough for you? Mm -hmm. And she does not need to ask those questions. He is not good enough for her. Okay. And, and I think that this is such a tiny shift you make in your life and it's a hard shift. I've had to make it myself over and over again, but it's a really important one. And I think it's kind of like one of the next frontiers in the, in the sort of feminist, the evolution of the feminist movement is for, for women to really learn how to actually be conscious of that really embedded social, social conditioning we have to be likable and to be, and to be nice and to have people explain to, you know, to, to have that need to have people explain to us why, why we're not likable enough. And, you know, I'm just saying, you know, in my own life, I'm about to turn 48. I'm sort of welcoming in the age of the bitch. I'm calling it the age of the bitch. <laughs> and, and my new thing is I don't care if you don't like me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's that's different from not being a nice person or not being a, a nurturing and kind person, but really trying to inhabit my own, you know, feelings or my own experiences of an interaction. And I just, you know, the, the strongest advice I can give to this young woman is to stop thinking about what he thinks of you and think about what you think of him. And other people's reactions to you aren't your responsibility and other people's misunderstandings of your intent or whether you're a good or decent person aren't necessarily your fault. That's right. And you're not in control of it. Nope. <laughs> no. Can we, can we uh, impose upon you to stick around for another couple questions? Of course. Because we have one that's more from my wheelhouse and we're going to play it now. Hi. So my wife really wants to have butter in her ass. Well, she wants to be able to bear down on something that's kind of squishy and feel like that sensation, but we're having trouble trying to figure out how to execute it. If we put it in the freezer, it'll be too cold, but it would be more rigid so you can put it in, but then it's going to be cold. So anyway, any help that you can uh, give us would be great. So Cheryl, along the Pacific Crest Trail, did you ever face this particular issue? (laughs) <laughs> now you know there's no butter on the pct that's that's the problem it would immediately melt oh my god another reason pack. i could never do it another reason because i have a minimum daily requirement of butter that i must ingest or i will die so but i love you know i love the physicality of this question because there is the conundrum of you know how to uh, and, and the and the caller you know refers like how do we is it is it cold is it hard is it what happens how do you get it up there without the whole thing coming Undone. So, so I, you know, this is really outside my wheelhouse. Have you ever done anything with butter, Dan? Sexually speaking? Uh, no, but I'm firm on we should not mix sex and food. Like, sex is basically right. the one moment in our lives as Americans that we haven't covered with chocolate sprinkles and caramel sauce and Jimmy's. Yeah, like, we should keep sex out of food. It's the only area of our lives where we take a we take a moment and stop chewing and ingesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm kind of a purist with you, though I will make an exception. I have used Altoids, you know, those like uh, curiously uh, strong mints. Mm-hmm. 
every once in a while, put one of those. Have you ever done this? You put it in your mouth before yes. you give a blowjob. Yes, and, and I have to admit that perhaps I was too uh, too hasty in ruling out ingesting. There are things that I do ingest <laughs> during sex that I believe we okay. all ingest. At we times. all ingest. <laughs> but yeah, the butter. But here's the thing: we're we're so we're anti-food, but we're pro like you know, let's do things that people want to do in bed if it's like, you know, a reasonable request, right? Right, absolutely. So here's what I would do. You know, I would I would chill the butter. I would put the butter not in the freezer but in the refrigerator. So it sort of got this nice solidity without being a, a block of ice. And and I would just I would just try it out, just put it on up there. I second that. My only other Suggestion might be, you know, if the partner is really bothered by slightly cold butter, which I don't think is going to be a problem, particularly if you cover it with lube, you have the option of the pastry bag. Yeah. Well, why would you cover the butter? With, like, isn't butter lube? Why would you cover it with lube? <laughs> well, <laughs> it is lube if it's if it's melting and hot, if it's warm. But, you know, the warmer it gets, the less the, you know, the harder it's going to be to shove in there. If you want it to be chilled and of a certain firmness and consistency, just a thin layer of lube on top of it might help ease it up the road. Yeah. Well, and I also think that there are probably sex toys out there. There are probably that, right, that it would would seem like butter. Like I, I guess I'm curious is that is that the melting sensation she's curious she wants to have in her ass is that I, I have no idea she said she wanted yeah. to bear down and feel what that felt like I assume she wants to crap butter Oh yeah well see that's it that's the thing for me is butter will essentially simulate shit for at least that period of time that it's like warm but not completely liquid Mhm It's like diarrhea so I would just put it in the fridge and ram it up her ass. That's what I would do. <laughs> and I think you can freeze it. Like people have this, you know, perhaps you're thinking that if it's really, really ice cold, it won't go in there. And that's not true. There are actually people out there who enjoy refrigerator, even freezing their butt toys because they like the sensation of the cold back there. So don't assume the butthole is going to slam shut and will be impenetrable if the thing attempting to go up there is cold because people do do, do that. Yeah. And butter doesn't stay cold. I mean, if you take butter out of the refrigerator or the freezer the minute you're you're putting your hands on it it would you know the outer layers would begin to soften and melt so do not use lube it is lube it's a block of lube right Mm -hmm. and and just go you know i would yeah just just see what happens i mean one of the great things about both cooking and sex is that it's all an experiment you just get in the kitchen and and start mixing things up right you never know what's going to really happen Absolutely. Same thing with the bedroom or the playroom or the car That's right. or the hotel room or the hotel lobby or whatever it is you're going to fuck. That's right. Or the trail. <laughs> the trail. Uh, you know, I will say, yeah, on the, it's not a good idea to fuck on the trail. Everyone just stinks. It's, it's like you're, you're, you're nasty. Everything's nasty. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine another yeah. reason that I won't probably ever do it, but I'll watch movies about it and I'll read well, books about it. You know, one of the things I wrote in wild is that I didn't even masturbate when I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Like, and I, and it's, uh, so many people have talked to me about that, that line in the book where I say, I'm so disgusting. I haven't even, I like literally for three months, I didn't masturbate because I was just like so disgusted with myself. <laughs> I can't do it. You're, you're just, you keep talking me out of, it. you make it sound transcendent and enlightening and like something everyone really ought to do at some point in your life. But then you throw out details like you didn't come once for three months and makes it that much well, less appealing yeah. to me. But, no, but like the caller, I did, I went off the trail at one point, met a guy, went and had sex with him on the beach, which, you know, that wasn't bad. Hey, Dan, I am a 28 year old female living in the Northeast 
and I am a park ranger, um, which is really fun. I like it a lot. The thing is, thing keeps happening to me at work, and I don't know how to deal with it, and it's driving me crazy. <laughs> older guys, mostly older, a couple younger guys, but they're just constantly commenting about my looks and my body, and I don't know how to react to it. Like a couple times a week at least, like way more than in my normal life. And just like little things like, hey there, good looking, or why don't you ask that pretty park ranger over there a question, or just little asides. And it doesn't seem ill-intentioned, but they have no right to be commenting about my body like that. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Like it might be like a uniform thing, like people like uniforms or... The other thing is that most of the people that I work with are men over the age of like 45. So I, I think people just don't expect a young lady to be working in this job. And so they're just kind of surprised to even see me. And that's what they're mostly commenting on. And yeah, when it happens outside of work, I definitely feel comfortable kind of putting people in their place, either saying like, I don't, I don't appreciate that or telling them to fuck off, like depending on what mood I'm in. Um, but at work, like my whole purpose is to be nice and friendly and helpful and tactful. And yeah, I just don't know how to respond when, when men say that kind of stuff to me um, in a way that, you know, reflects nicely on my organization and also feels like I'm standing up for myself. All right. Sounds like we're back at the way women are socialized and conditioned. Yeah, indeed. So, you know, this one really, uh, it, it raised so many alarm bells in me, you know, and also I have to say, I so identify with this. You know, I do think about my time on the trail when I was in this situation where I was really one of the few women. I know that a lot of hikers on the Pacific Crest Trail now, it's probably a lot more gender mixed. But when I was hiking the PCT, I was really this kind of, you know, the odd woman out. It was almost all men. And I got a lot of that same kind of attention that this uh, caller is describing that she gets in her job as a, as a park ranger. And I think a lot of women who are in situations where they're like, the, you know, one of the, it's sort of rare for a woman to be doing that thing. And I wouldn't say that it's rare for a woman to be a park ranger, but it really is, you know, a traditionally a male field. And I think, you know, it's definitely, you know, men are responding to that by trying to, in so many ways, undermine her position and her power. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the advice I would give is kind of twofold. The first thing, everyone has the right to work in a, in a, a work environment without sexual harassment. And so she should absolutely talk to her, her boss, her human resources people. Uh, I was a waitress for years. Um, and that's an environment where a lot of women are just sort of commonly harassed. A lot of men think they just have the right to harass the waitress. That, that's what I thought. The minute I listened to the call, I thought baristas, waitresses, right. bartenders who come in for this unwelcome attention, the sexual objectification, and the person who's doing it thinks they're just being friendly and nice. And you're in this position where you're supposed to be your service personnel. So as a park ranger in a way, often yeah. in their job, and you're supposed to be nice and ingratiating and you're just kind of trapped between the sexual attention harassment that's unwelcome and not okay and your official role, which is putting you in a position where you can't be shut up, asshole, to that person. Yeah, that's right. And what I did in that position, you know, honestly, I I would go to my manager when, you know, if I was waiting on a, ta a table of men who were being, you know, stepping over that line, you know, I would say, hey, this, you know, this isn't okay. And I'd go to my manager. And it, I think it's really amazing several times. 
um, the manager would step in and say to, the, to the, the customers, you can't treat our servers this way. And, you know, I think that, first of all, just, you know, really, you know, trying to use those kind of resources you actually have on the job are going to be really important. But the other thing is, sadly, I think women have to learn how to actually sort of stare those comments down. And it takes a lot of nerve and it can feel like you're not being friendly. Here we are again, back to this idea that women are supposed to be friendly. And I get it that in your job as a park ranger, you want to be welcoming, you want to be a positive uh, you know, person, you know, you want to have those positive interactions. But I think you can really be firm and positive at the same time and just, you know, learn how to practice a set of comments and replies that you can make to those common uh, comments that you get about your looks and your body. Such as any suggested remarks? That, you know, I guess, so for example, one of the examples, I think she said, oh, you know, uh, you know, what, what I, I remember when I was on the PCT, people would say, oh, what's a pretty lady like you doing? And I, it's a lot of those kind of, hey, pretty lady, this is kind of a surprise kind of comments. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that just making eye contact, that's somehow really important. Just making eye contact with a with a serious looking look on your face and just say, uh, my looks don't have anything to do with this. But, you know, I'm so glad you're here in the park. Can I help you with something? You know, that I think that what you're doing is when you make a comment like that, it's neutral. You're simply pointing out the the sexism or you're pointing out the comment that this man made without really, you know, having a confrontation or or, or uh, you're, you're moving or, or demanding apology. You're, I, I find that those kind of acknowledgement comments can go a long way towards diffusing a, a situation. You know, I, a lot of those people don't have ill intent. Obviously, right. they're probably thinking they're complimenting you. So if you say something to them like, why would you say something like that? Right. You're, you're asking for them to defend themselves or justify what they just did as opposed to just shutting it down. My looks have nothing to do with it. Can I help you with something? Yes. And I think that a lot of people will feel you know, slightly taken aback or embarrassed, but it's just a moment. And, you know, I think we all need that corrective sometimes. I know when I've been on the other end of a comment like that, when I've been the buffoon who said something dumb, I actually feel kind of grateful that somebody pointing that, pointed that out to me in a kind of neutral manner that doesn't, uh, you know, it, it allows room for us to, to then, you know, proceed uh, in, in a new vein. And I think that, you know, practicing that, like practice it in the mirror. Every time I've had to say something hard like that, I've had to rehearse it so that I'm ready. You know, you know, somebody, the caller knows that a, another guy's going to come down the pipe and say, you know, boy, you're pretty. And so just for her to come up with that sort of phrase that she can say right back without it being a confrontation and learning how to sort of move beyond that. That's, that's the best advice I have. I mean, I do think that, you know, I, that, that sadly this is going to be probably part of her life until she's middle-aged and then men stop paying attention to her altogether. <laughs> as I can report from that shore. <laughs> Before I let you go, you just said like when you screw it up, when you say the wrong thing, when you're the buffoon, yeah. I'm shocked that you would, you would say that because in my experience, people who give advice professionally never make a mistake, never say the wrong thing, never screw up a romantic relationship, that we're perfect in every possible way, most of us. Yeah, <laughs> that's, true. that's true. So I think I only probably screwed up once, right, right Dan? Pardon? But no, have you, you know, when I was like 19, seriously, when, when I was like 19, can I tell you yeah, a story? 
Um, I was, I, well, I was working at a restaurant. I was a waitress and, and my, like my best friend, my coworker at the restaurant was this gay man. And, um, I was still young enough that, you know, in my high school, people would just say, Oh, that's so gay. That's so gay. That's okay. So and they didn't mean gay. They meant like stupid. Mm-hmm. And I was still young enough that I just never like put that together. And one time I was talking to him and I said, that's okay. And he just looked at me and he said, that isn't gay. I'm gay. And, and, and that's, you know, gay isn't stupid. And I was so embarrassed. Like I just blushed so deeply, but I never used, I never said that, that word again in that context. And it was like such a great thing in my life. Cause he just taught, he just schooled me and he didn't hold it against me. And we stayed friends and it was, it was nothing, but he was just pointing out my own stupidity or bias or ignorance. And, um, and, and I was so grateful for it. And so I think that interactions like that can actually be really useful. And, you know, maybe don't think of it as like that you're condemning somebody for saying you're pretty, but you're pointing out that there's, you know, that there's some sexism in that statement. And I think a lot of people don't know that there is, you know, I, I really do think that I would say probably a majority of the men who uh, have complimented me on my looks, you know, strangers, hey, pretty lady, that kind of stuff. They don't, they mean well, you know, and, and, and I'm sure that, you know, that with this caller, as she says too, they don't necessarily mean um, to, to harm her in any way. But I think it's important to point out that, that not all of our, you know, good intentions aren't always enough. Sometimes we need to, you know, school people on, on the ways they, tr- they treat us, you know, and, and it's not always uh, fun or easy. Cheryl Strait, she schools people weekly at Dear Sugar Radio, author of Wild, Tiny, Beautiful Things and other books. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was really fun chatting with you. Oh, I always love talking to you, Dan. Thank you. Hello, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. Half a year ago, I fell in love hard with a dancer I met at a workshop. We spent 10 days together dancing and getting to know each other. I felt intoxicated, inspired, dizzy, amazed, alive. We kept the dance, the connection alive long distance for the next three months, and then we met up again and spent four weeks dancing together on and off this summer. When we were together this summer, we took turns having doubts sometimes about the connection and also feeling really powerfully in love. Maybe this is all typical early love stuff. Now we are on separate continents again, and I miss him terribly. I want to stay in touch. I want to make plans to see each other again. He, on the other hand, is expressing doubts as to whether he will continue wanting to invest in the connection. I feel grief, loss, and some anger. I know I can't blame him for how he feels, but there is a sense of shock that two weeks ago he acted so sure about me, so in love, and now suddenly he is so distant and unsure. I feel not seen. I want to invest in working together as dancers. I see our potential to make great things together as artists, and he has doubts about it. That hurts so much. He is more experienced as a dancer. I'm a fast learner, and it seems that he doesn't feel I'm good enough yet. I guess I don't want to be with someone who isn't sure if they want to be with me. But right now, I just feel flooded with pain and disappointment. I know I can't make him feel differently. Should I try to be cool and wait it out to see if his feelings shift? A few weeks ago, he seemed to really believe in our potential. Part of me wants to express my anger and disappointment, but I can see how that probably won't help the situation. Should I try to be understanding and patient? Is it hopeless? Should I just move on? You can be 
angry and you can be disappointed. And it sounds like you are angry and in pain and disappointed because you've been dumped. I don't mean to compound your pain or make it any worse, but you've been dumped and you should feel whatever feelings you need to feel and you're entitled to feel and have a right to feel. And you're going to feel anyway, whether or not you feel entitled to them or that you have a right to them, you're going to feel the way that you feel right now about what just happened to you, which was you were dumped and you can be angry at him for the things he said five weeks ago and for the loss of the potential that you saw in your romantic connection and your artistic connection. But people say things when they're just beginning to date someone or hang out with someone or have a sexual and romantic connection with someone in the moment. They say things that later they regret saying or have to walk back or later conclude, you know, they got out over their romantic and sexual skis and the things that they said were not really as they learned more about this relationship that you two were building. It wasn't actually how they felt and they feel embarrassed and they didn't intentionally hurt you, but you're hurt regardless. You know, you've expressed to him how you feel. You've expressed to him that you would like to continue to make art with him, that you would like to continue to be with him romantically and sexually. And he gets to make up his own mind. And there's nothing that you can do to force him to make the choice that you would like him to make. He's going to make the choice that he is going to make as painful as that might be for you. So yeah, you should be understanding and you should be patient and you can be angry and you can be hurt and you can be disappointed. You can be all of those things. And you should also move on. Even if you think there's a chance that he might change his mind, that he might want you to come to his continent or he might return to your continent so you two can be together again, you should still move on because there's no guarantee that he's going to change his mind. So you should get out there next week or in a couple of weeks or in a couple of months after you've had time to really grieve this and see who else is out there. He is not the only man, dancer, artist on the planet. There are other men out there. Maybe there's one man like him who you can have a romantic and sexual and artistic connection with. Maybe there's three men out there that you're going to have with one, an artistic connection that's very productive and with another, a sexual connection and with a third, a romantic and hopefully also sexual connection. You don't know if you're going to find everything you found in him in one person again, although that is possible, or you're going to find that in different people in multiple people. But right now, the thing that is happening for you is what happens for a lot of us when we get dumped. We think that the way we felt about this person we will never feel about anyone else. There was something magical and irreplaceable about them and something about how they made us feel that no one else is capable of doing that. No one else will ever make us feel the way this person made us feel. And it's not true. There are 3.5 billion plus other men on the planet. Many of them are dancers. Many of them are people you're going to find sexually attractive. Many of them are people that you're going to have a romantic connection with that. It didn't work out with this guy. You invested a lot of hope in this guy and you spun out a future with him sexually, romantically, artistically that may not come to pass. And that is not in your control. And that feeling of helplessness is always upsetting, but there are other men that you can make that same investment in romantically, sexually, artistically, and that future will come to pass with someone else, maybe even with him, but the ball is entirely in his court and you need to act like it's over and tell yourself it's over and put yourself back out there 
on the sexual market, the romantic market, the artistic market, as if it were over. And then if he circles back to you, you can be pleasantly surprised. And if you are not then involved with someone else, maybe you can pick things back up with him. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm 20 years old. I'm a gay male. And I have, since a few years ago, been interested in uh, late teenagers, I suppose. Those between the ages of 16 and 20, I guess. Not too much in the older guys, but as I'm growing older, clearly there's a three-year age gap between what's legal and what's not. So anyone beneath the age of 18 at this point is uh, off the table as far as any sort of relationship or anything like that would go um, legally. And so what I'm curious about is if there's any way to become more interested in people who are older, uh, more mature men physically who have more like hair or fat slash body mass, that sort of thing. If there's any sort of advice you could have as far as transitioning to being attracted to fellow teenagers, to as I'm growing up being attracted to fellow 20, mid 20 year olds, mid, I mean, early 30, mid 30 year olds, um, anything like that. I don't want to come down too hard on you. And I hope listeners out there aren't going to come down too hard on you or condemn you in the comments because you're only 20 years old and you're talking about being 20 and attracted to guys who are roughly over the last few years when you were 17 to 20 years old, being attracted to guys who are roughly 16 to 20 years old. So attracted to guys your own age, you're assuming right now at 20 that your tastes will never evolve, that you will be fixated forever on late teenagers. Hopefully we are talking about 18 and above from here on out. And that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of people who when they're young are attracted to guys in their own cohort, and as they age, their ceiling rises. Maybe their floor stays exactly where it was, but their ceiling rises. And maybe you'll be one of those guys. Don't condemn yourself to this pile of gay men out there, and there are gay men out there, just like there are straight men out there, who are fixated on barely legals. They're out there. You might be one of them, but you might not be one of them. You also have the option, as you age, of dating adult men who are boyish, they are also out there. You say that, how do I learn to become attracted to guys with more body mass? How do I learn to become attracted to guys with more body hair? There are skinny, twinky, boyish men everywhere in their late 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s. There are short, slim, twiggish, twinkish guys who are smooth, who in the right light and perhaps with their cooperation, you can role play a little bit that they're still 18 and they might get off on that because it's going to make for them what may have made it difficult for them to date some other men, something that makes it fun for them to date you because you're so into their type. Maybe not all of them would be into that. Some of them probably are sick of being pursued by guys who are giving them the creeps around wishing that they were 15. Don't be that kind of guy about it. Just be honest that you have this type for skinny, boyish Men. So to sum up my advice, give yourself some time. You're only 20. You've been attracted to guys roughly your age now, which is typical for young people. At 30, your tastes may have broadened. Also, at 30, if your tastes haven't broadened, if you're still attracted to that skinny, smooth, hairless type, 
you will be able to find and meet and date and have relationships with other adult men with that body type. They are out there. Hey, Dan. Uh, this is a 31-year-old straight male, recently moved across the country to be with his 31-year-old straight girlfriend. Uh, unfortunately, shortly before the move, the relationship ended due to her admission of being both physically and emotionally unfaithful. It was a long-distance relationship for a good chunk of the three years, maybe about half of the three years that we've been together. She moved across the country for me. I returned the favor recently. Um, want to work things out. Curious if I'm naive for thinking that that could happen if we both live in the same apartment, which is my only resource, unfortunately. Uh, definitely the first year of the relationship, I was pretty selfish and made mistakes about, uh, uh, was, was a front, but wanted an open relationship, had problems being exclusive. And uh, these were all things she kind of went along with. And now a couple of years later, this is her kind of uh, getting payback in, in her opinion. But now that it's out of her system, claims that we can move forward together. Uh, just curious if this is worth the pursuit or if someone should be willing to leave behind past mistakes when uh, it's been a very open, honest relationship where I was always honest about the open relationship and this time she's kind of gone behind my back. Uh, any advice would be much appreciated. Thanks. I had to listen to your call four times, four times before I understood exactly what it was you were asking me. And the key was that chunk where you were asking me, is, is this worth pursuing? Meaning, is it worth starting things back up? Is it worth working things out and staying together? Which seems to be entirely your call. You moved there to be with her. You found out that she had had an emotional and sexual affair without telling you and you ended it. And so now it's up to you. You want me to tell you whether you should pursue it, but you're not willing to pursue it unless someone, and that would be her, leaves behind past mistakes. And what I think you mean by that is that she takes complete responsibility for the crack up in this relationship and no longer throws those past mistakes, which were your mistakes, in your face when she is trying to rationalize her bad behavior. Because beginning of the relationship – you imposed on her unilaterally an open relationship. You fucked around, ran around with other people, and that doesn't sound like it was okay with her at the time. And then later, she fucked around on you when you didn't like it. And in her reading, you're even because you fucked around when she didn't like it. You fucked around when she didn't like it. But you were honest. You told her you were fucking around when she didn't like it. And for you, that's the big difference. And that is your get out of you were being a hurtful shit to free card. That she should have to take complete responsibility because what she did was wrong because she was dishonest. And when you were doing her, by her reading, wrong, at least you were honest about it. At least you were honest about the ways you were hurting her. I'm sorry. I have to side with her in this. You were both shitty to each other. You fucked other people. She fucked other people. You told her in advance of fucking other people that you were going to fuck other people. And she told you retroactively. She told you after the fact. Before the fact, after the fact, you both fucked other people. At a time when it wasn't okay really with either of you. So you are even in a sense. So yeah, I see that as even 
ish. If I was going to apportion the blame, I would give her 52% of it and I would give you 48% of it or give her 55% of it and you 45% of it. But you're pretty close, pretty even those piles of blame that I've assigned to each of you. If you want to go forward in this relationship, you need to look at each other and say, we're not going to play games anymore. We're not going to be shitty to each other anymore. That if we're going to be together, we're going to have to be on the same page about when and whether we fuck other people or if we fuck other people. And we're going to err on the side of honesty from here on out, which you are always good at, even when it was painful for her. And you're going to err on the side of consideration for each other's feelings, which she wasn't good at when she did this behind your back, which added this layer of betrayal and hurt for you. Seems to me that you two are a match. You both shitty to each other in your own ways. And now you can stay together and make it work or you can get out there and find new people to be shitty to. But I would urge you to stay in the relationship, go forth and be shitty no more. Hey, Dan, this is a comment for episode 517, the girl whose boyfriend doesn't come or isn't coming. So my last partner actually, like, he never came the entire time we were together. And it was because he was on, like, certain medications, like antidepressants. I'm pretty sure if you're on, like, Wellbutrin or Zoloft that it makes it just, like, much harder for some people and their body chemistries to, like, physically come. And honestly, it was, like really hot. I mean, once we both kind of like established and like figured out what it was, I mean, sure, it was like a delicious challenge to every once in a while, like try to get him to that point and make him come. But you should just enjoy yourself. He can fuck for as long as you guys want it to go. And then I feel like you have this opportunity and like all the power to make the sex about you. Like when it's over, when you say it's over, as opposed to so many relationships where it's just over when the guy comes. So have fun, enjoy yourself, and who knows, maybe it'll catch you by surprise one day. Hey, Dan. This is a call in response to the woman with a boyfriend who wouldn't come. I just wanted to call and say your advice was spot on and to let her know that I'm one of those dudes. I've been in an open relationship with my girlfriend for four or five years, and I just had a secondary partner who, unfortunately, I'm not seeing anymore. But she was super cool, and... We fucked a lot, and I did not come a single time, and I loved every minute of it. Hi, Dan. I just wanted to call and say thank you. Um, I'm dating a couple and have been for several months. It's going wonderfully, and it's been starting to feel awkward not to tell my parents about it. And I heard the call a couple weeks ago from a bi man who was coming out about that, and it kind of gave me the courage to just back up and come out to them as bi and tell them about my awesome new situation. I told them and they were a little confused at first, um, but totally supportive. And then my mom turned to my dad and said, honey, didn't you remember we just heard about this on Savage Love? And they had listened to the call also by that person. And it gave them really good context for understanding. And they gave me my blessing and it was great all around. So Thank you, Mom and Dad, if you're listening, for your blessing. Didn't realize you were listeners as well. And thank you, Dan, for helping us with that process. And we're going to leave it there. Minneapolis, Vancouver, Sacramento, Denver, Brooklyn, Victoria, BC, Cleveland, and Baltimore. The Hump Film Fest is coming to you. Go to humpfilmfest.com for info. 
and tickets. Also, filmmakers go to humpfilmfest.com for information about submitting to Hump. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 206- 302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Cheryl Strayed on Twitter at Cheryl Strayed. And speaking of Twitter, Chicago Reading Girl tweets, Since your lecture at the Shy Humanities Festival is on Halloween, can attendees come in costume? Hashtag Chicago Humanities Festival. October 31st in Chicago. This year I will be speaking. And yes, if you would like to come in costume, that would be really fun. Please do come in costume. I will not be coming in costume because... The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Love Cast. Bye.